Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. Well, I've got good news and bad news for you. Which one do you want to hear first? All right, I actually don't have good news and bad news for you, but I do have a poll for you because I'm sure you've been asked that question before. How many of you would prefer to hear the good news first? When somebody says, I have good news and bad, for, bad news, raise your hand. Good news? Not many. All right, so I guess the rest of you, you want the bad news. Show me your hands. Okay, so I need to, uh, I need to teach you this morning something that's not totally connected to the lesson, but it's very important for you who love to hear the bad news first. Did you know research shows that you should always listen to the good news first? And the reason why that is is because whenever you hear bad news, your brain actually locks in on that. It sort of shuts down to a degree, and it only focuses on that, and you will never actually hear what the good news is. It might go in your ears, but it doesn't actually stick in your brain. So if you want to truly internalize the good news and you you remember it later, you actually need to listen to the good news first. I don't have bad news or good news for you, but I do want to talk about news because it's really important. In fact, there's a word in the Bible that talks about good news. That word is the word gospel. If you've grown up in church, you've heard about that word gospel. It's just a word that means good news. And there's a lot of different ideas about what gospel is. There's a lot of, there's a lot of false gospels out there because they're all promising the same thing. A gospel is just simply good news that leads to human flourishing. It's news that will make your life better. But there's a lot of gospels out there, a lot of ideas, a lot of messages that are trying to teach us how we can truly flourish as humans. So some of the false gospels that are out there, well, the first one began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember the message that the serpent gave to the woman Eve when he told her, if you'll eat that fruit that God told you not to eat, then your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And she, she bought the lie and she ate of the fruit. And what it left her with was destruction. It left her with exile, her and her husband, and devastation, a future that they never imagined. But even today, our culture has some different ideas about what the gospel is, this message of what you need to do in order to flourish. And one of those ideas is just be whoever you feel like. Whatever's going on in your heart, that's what you need to do. You need to uh, pursue that identity, whether it's uh, a different identity or a different idea about uh, gender or about sexuality. Whatever that is, you need to pursue it because, I mean, you know your heart's never lied to you, right? Never. Certainly it has. You've lied to you more than anybody else has lied to you. There's other ideas out there about what a gospel is, uh, this idea of human flourishing. It's that if you can just climb the ladder of success, you can reach a certain level, then all of a sudden your life will be exactly the way that you want it to be, and you'll truly flourish. If you can just reach this level of financial independence, then everything will be good, and, and everything will be like it's supposed to be. Or if you can just buy all of the right things, if you can get the right car, you can get the right house, you can get your kids into the right school, if you can just get this certain degree, if you can find the right person, then everything else will fall into place and everything will be like it's supposed to be. But what some of us have experienced, and if you haven't experienced it yet, you will, 
They're false gospels. They make promises that they can't deliver on because they're not the true gospel. In fact, they're counterfeits. You ever bought anything on Amazon or eBay and you got it in and it was not what the picture looked like? Or it might have been what the picture looked like, but it was a very scaled down version and you realize this is not legitimate. This is a counterfeit. And all the reviews said it was good. You read 200 reviews and they all gave it five stars. Even they all said verified purchase and you should probably ignore those reviews because that just means they were paid to review it. And you thought this is it. This is legitimate. And then when it got there and you actually experienced it and you opened it up, you said, this is a fake. This is cheap. This is not what I thought I was going to buy. That's what it's like when you finally understand that what you've been pursuing is just a false gospel. It was a promise to lead you to human flourishing. But in the end, it left you with brokenness, hurt, devastation, isolation, and loneliness. So the question is, what is the true gospel? What is the true gospel? That's what we all want to know, right? What is this true message that will actually lead to human flourishing? What do we all need to hear that God wants us to understand so that we can truly be the people that he created us to be? You ready for it? It's actually pretty simple. Jesus is king. Now, that might have been an actually a different idea of the gospel than what you have thought about or maybe you were raised to think about. And yes, it does include the idea of forgiveness of sin, and we'll get to that point. But the very essence of the gospel is actually this message, Jesus is King. And so what I want us to do today is begin a series. It's actually not a new series. It's the culmination of a year and a half long journey walking through the gospel of John. And we haven't been in John for a year and a half, but we actually began this journey a year and a half ago. And so that you didn't get bored and tired of me, I broke it up into multiple series. This is actually our fourth series out of the gospel of John. And it certainly won't be our last because it's a phenomenal message that John records for us. But this will end a journey that we began a year and a half ago. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to look at the last couple of chapters out of the Gospel of John. And what John is trying to show to us, among everything else, is the idea that Jesus is king. But it's not a story about a king that you would have expected, because when you think about a story of a king, you think about a massive crowd gathering around, and they're cheering this on, and they're watching the coronation, and it's beautiful, and it's regal. And that's not the story that John shares for us, because the story that John shares is about a king whose crown is made out of thorns that are thrust into his brow. It's about a king whose throne is not made of gold, but it's made of wood, and it's in the shape of a cross. But yet, it's what Jesus chose to be exalted and raised up on. And even those who confess his name as king, some of them don't even realize that's what they're doing. And the crowd that's gathered didn't gather to watch a coronation. They gathered to watch a crucifixion. But what they're actually witnessing is a king being enthroned in all of his regal majesty and beauty. It's just not the story of a king that you would have expected. But then again, when did Jesus do anything that you expected him to do? You see, up until this point, just a few chapters ago in John, on the night that they were going to observe Passover, when they were looking for someone to wash their dirty feet, their king got on his hands and knees with a bowl of water and a towel, and one by one went around the table and washed their feet. 
Then they observed the Passover and he connected it to his own death and he left them this meal that we just observed just a few moments ago about that bread that, that is his body and that fruit of the vine that is his blood and he gave that for us to remember that sacrifice that he made for us. And then they're going to leave there, head toward the Mount of Olives and there one of his closest followers, a man by the name of Judas, one of the 12 is gonna come up and he's going to betray Jesus. And just before then, he had been in that garden of Gethsemane and he had been praying so intensely that Luke said his sweat became like great drops of blood. What we know is that the capillaries in his skin actually burst and the sweat and blood mixed together. And he was in such intense agony over that. And then he's betrayed by a close friend and then they come to arrest him and it looks like a fight's about to break out. And Peter calms the crowd, tells his disciples to put the swords away. And in a move nobody ever expected... He surrendered himself. He stopped the fight and he willingly was led away to what would ultimately be his own death. And this is the story that John tells so that we can truly see our king. It's not a story you or I should expect to read. So where I want to pick up today in John's story is in chapter 18. And Jesus is standing in front of a man named Pontius Pilate. He's a Roman governor. He's been placed there by the Roman Caesar. His job is to keep the peace. His job is to keep these unruly Jews who are so prone to rebellions. He's, his job is to keep them at peace. And now all of a sudden he's standing face to face with a man he's never met, but a man who knows way more about him than he could have ever imagined. If you got your Bible, I'd love for you to join me in John chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 33. Pilate's got this crowd outside that's calling for the death of Jesus. They're being led by the Jewish uh, priest and they're being led by the Jewish rulers. And he's interrogating Jesus and he realizes that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. And so he's trying to figure out what in the world is going on. He's playing a little catch up here. And he says, and he brings Jesus back into his headquarters and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, do you say this on your own accord or did others say this about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your own chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom, it's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said, what's truth? After this, he went back outside and to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. What do, you want me to, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Man, there is so much here. We could spend a lot of time. I just want to point out this morning a couple of takeaways from this text. The first one is this idea that Jesus is the king of kings. In these couple of verses, six times it mentions the word king or kingdom. This is a text about Jesus being king, but it's, a, it's an aroundabout conversation. It's not a direct conversation, but Jesus is just talking about how he's the king. Pilate asked him, are you the king? the Jews, and Jesus talks about his kingdom, and it's all about this idea of Jesus being 
king because that's the very essence of the gospel. The next book in your Bible is the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. It's a history book about the early church. And what you'll notice if you really pay attention is every recorded sermon all has a similar theme. It's all got a message around one idea. When, when the person that is delivering the message gets to the climactic part of the sermon, they always say the same thing. Slightly different variations, but the same message. The message is Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And we read that and we go, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. That's his last name. It's not his last name. Christ is actually his title. It's a word that means the anointed one. And in the Bible, there were three groups of people that were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings. And it's a message for us that Jesus is the king. In fact, in chapter 8, it says that those who have been forced to scatter, this is because this persecution that's broke out, they go everywhere proclaiming the good news of the word. It literally says they go out gospeling the word. They're just, everywhere they go, they're just talking about the good news because, well, that's what we do, right? When you hear really, really good news, what do you do? You internalize it and you don't tell a soul, do you? You just keep that all to yourself because you don't want to bless anybody else with good news, do you? You don't tell anybody about the new job that you got, about the new opportunity. You don't post anything about the awesome stuff your kids have done or the new car you got or the new house you bought. You don't tell anything, anybody about the good news that's happened in your life, do you? Yes, of course you do because that's what we do with good news. Everywhere they went, they're telling the good news. And what is the good news? They're proclaiming the Christ. The Christ, what, it, what does that mean? It doesn't just mean they were talking about Jesus. They're sharing how he's the king. And it's such an important message for us to understand because Jesus is truly the one and only king. Now, with that, there's another idea. It's that his kingdom is not like earthly kingdoms. Now, at this time, they're living under the reign of Rome. And so this is a little different for us because we don't live under a king, right? We live in a democratic republic, and we have a vote. We have a say in government, sort of. Uh, And every so often, we have the opportunity to go to the polls, and we can cast our vote, and we hope in good faith it's going to be accurately counted, and that that will have a say in the function of our government. And if we don't like the person who's running the country, then we go to the polls and we vote them out. And we put somebody else there that we think will do a better job. Well, if we were to live in the time of Jesus, they didn't have polls, they didn't have elections. You couldn't go and say, I think the Roman emperor is doing a terrible job and I think we ought to raise up a new emperor. You can't do that. The only way to change the government is to lead a coup. It's to overthrow the government. That's why Pilate is so concerned with what's going on with Jesus. He's trying to figure out, is this a guy that I've got to worry about raising up a group of rebels and trying to overthrow the Roman government. Now, the way that Rome ruled the world, because they were the world power at this time, is they ruled the world through takeover and taxes. They would use their army and they would go in and they would take over a neighboring nation. And then they would place their soldiers there and they would tax the people to pay for the soldiers that were living in a place that nobody ever asked for them to live. It's the way that it works. It's the way of the world, right? And if you were living under the reign of the Roman Empire, whether you were a Roman citizen or not, you paid your taxes because you had to pay for the peace and security that Rome provided. And you know how Rome provided peace and security? Because Rome had a gospel. Their gospel was of peace and security. And the way they provided that was through submission. Not voluntary submission, required submission. 
Because if you didn't submit, you know what you received? A cross. And any rebel, any insurrectionist, any person who was trying to create chaos was given a cross. And you'd be hung on a cross for days and days. For everybody to see, this is what happens when you fight back against the power of Rome. And you'd look at that and you'd say, I don't want to do that. Now today, we don't fight battles with crosses, do we? We use cruise missiles, the threat of nuclear, cyber warfare, all kinds of crazy stuff. But the message is still the same. How do you have peace around the world? You have peace in that somebody has more ammunition than everybody else. And everybody stays at peace until everybody doesn't stay at peace. And then there's just world chaos. But Jesus' kingdom is not like earthly kingdoms. Because how did Jesus bring peace and security? He brought peace and security a lot like Rome, but in a very different way. It involved a cross. It just involved him giving his life on a cross. And that was the way that Jesus conquered evil. He didn't fight back. He just surrendered and allowed evil to conquer him. And by evil conquering him, it was this complete reversal that nobody saw coming where he actually fully conquered evil by giving his life on a cross. And part of his message is so important to us, where in John chapter 8, he talked about how what he was bringing was truth. His truth would set us free. He tells us we can know this truth that is so liberating. And that's so important because, well, ever since Genesis chapter 3, we've been living with lies. False gospel after false gospel after false gospel, promising to deliver all throughout time, just changing slightly in variation, a little different messaging, a little different way to access it. But if you'll just believe this, if you'll just submit to this and do this, it will deliver you. And what you wind up finding later is that you're more, in, you're more chained to that false gospel than you ever imagined. You're living in such uh, captivity that you never imagined how you even got there. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus says his truth would set the world free. That's what we need. He's promising to bring in his kingdom freedom. And not freedom with a backdoor angle that is just simply captivity with a mirage of freedom. It's true freedom in Christ. Freedom from tyranny. Freedom from addiction. Freedom from self-centered living. Freedom from the dysfunction that we experience every day. And we find all of this in the kingdom that Jesus was talking about. Now, there's a couple of dangers here for us. One of the dangers is that rather than living in the kingdom of God, we can try to build our own kingdom. And let's just be honest for a minute this morning. There's some of us in this room who have been struggling with that. We've been a little guilty of kind of building our own kingdoms, working diligently as hard as we can to kind of take care of my own, get as much as I can, accumulate as much as I can, get as much success as I can, just so that I can kind of grow my kingdom and make my life a little bit more comfortable. And if I'm not careful, what I might ultimately do by making my life more comfortable and my kingdom a little larger is I might actually start taking from the kingdoms of other people. And I might start taking rights and privileges and freedoms that somebody else might have. And I might start in some kind of way oppressing without even realizing it to climb, to grow. 
And then I put all my trust in this little kingdom that I've built up and that I've established that I'm reigning over. And even in doing that, I can still show up to church. I can still sing the songs. I can still eat the bread. I can go through the motions that Eric was talking about during our communion thoughts this morning. And I can walk out the door and I can be completely content in my own mind. Meanwhile, I'm living as my own king of my own life, totally lying to myself that Jesus is the Lord of my life. That's a real danger for every one of us. The other danger that we can find ourselves in is that we can trust in earthly kingdoms. We can say, well, if we can just get the right leaders, if we can just make these changes, then everything else will be okay. I want to share with you what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. It's a reminder of the kingdom that we find ourselves in if we're living in and under the kingdom of God. The Hebrew writer says, let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because here's what we know, if you're building your own kingdom, it's going to be shaken. There's going to be something in your life that causes it to come crumbling down. It could be a diagnosis, it could be a turn in the economy, could be a lost job, could be loss of a family member. Something could happen and all of a sudden that kingdom is just like a castle made of sand that somebody comes and just stomps on and it's just gone. And what are you left with but nothing except brokenness and pain? isolation and loneliness because you placed your hope in a false kingdom or you started trusting in the kingdom here on this earth, whether it be in government or in uh, an ideal or in a country. And all of a sudden what you find is that things can change when our true trust and citizenship, the New Testament says over and over again, should be in the kingdom of God first and foremost. That first pledge our allegiance We've got to be careful to make sure that our ultimate hope is placed in the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken. And thirdly, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but it is in this world. Let me explain to you what I mean. I want to start out by answering the question, what is kingdom? Kelvin Teemer wrote this in a book that I've really come to enjoy. He said, The kingdom of God is the reign of God over the brokenness of humanity through Jesus. It is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven through Jesus. It is the righteousness of God poured out over the world that he created taking place through Jesus. If you're a baptized believer, you find yourself living in the kingdom of God. But what's also fascinating is that you find the kingdom of God living within you. Because God is reigning over your life. What is the kingdom of God? It is where God is reigning. It is where righteousness is found and is experienced. And yes, in a, in a one sense, a corporate sense, the church is the kingdom of God, but the church is not the entire kingdom of God because God's kingdom is not just contained here. God's kingdom is over this entire world because God is ruling and reigning. And the kingdom of God is where God is reigning and it's ruling and his desire is for his rule and reign to be done on earth as it is decreed in heaven. Now the question is, is God's will always done on earth as he decrees it in heaven? The answer to that question is no. Turn on the news, turn on social media, go talk with some of your friends and coworkers and classmates and you'll figure out pretty quickly God's will is not always done on earth as he would decree it to be done in heaven. And so one of the responsibilities of us as children of God is to take the kingdom of God into the world so that others can experience that light and that salvation so that they can get a glimpse or a taste of what it looks like for God to reign over their life. Because if you're like me, you've grown up reading the history books and every time you read about a king, it was bad news. 
it might have started out good, but it ultimately ended terribly. And maybe there was this one good king, and if you've read through the books of Kings in First and Second Kings in your Bible, there were a couple of good kings, but it'd always be followed by a really bad king. And it's like, this guy did really good, and this guy was just going to completely undo it and make it even worse. And you look around the world today, and there's so much corruption from power and greed that takes place. And we think about the concept of kingdom, it might make you a little anxious. I don't know if I want to live in a kingdom because every other concept of kingdom I've ever seen has been corrupted. But when you read through the gospels, you read what it really looks like for God to reign as king, because that's what Jesus came to show us, what it truly looks like for God to reign as king on earth as it is in heaven. And when we surrender our lives to him, when we confess his name, we're baptized into Christ and we die to ourselves and die to our own little kingdoms that we're trying to build. And we devote our lives to building his kingdom and to allowing God to reign over our lives. It changes everything about us. And then when you go to work and you have a conversation with a coworker and something's going on in their life and you offer to pray for them, they're experiencing the kingdom of God. You're at the grocery store, you're at the interstate, you're at the stop sign and you see the person that's asking for help and you choose to give and to assist. And you do so generously. That person, whether they realize it or not, is experiencing the kingdom of God because in that moment you allowed God to reign over your desires and over your checkbook and over your wallet and you decided to give because Jesus is a benevolent king. And even in that moment that you didn't want to but you surrendered, you allowed God to reign over your life. And when you're in that moment and you're experiencing anger and frustration and a lack of patience, and you have that moment, you just kind of pause and you calm yourself and you have a quiet little prayer asking God to crucify that, those impure desires within you. And you allow the fruits of the Spirit that line our walls to reign over your life. Whoever it is that's about to experience your wrath is now going to experience God's kingdom because that's what it looks like when God reigns over our life. Folks, the kingdom of God is something that impacts us every day. It is something that we are to take with us every day. Everywhere you go, people are experiencing the reign and rule of God through your life into their life. It's why the gospel is good news that leads to human flourishing. Because when people look at our lives, what they should see is true flourishing. Yes, there's times where there's sacrifice involved, but it's for a greater reason. It's for a greater purpose. And it's not complete sacrifice when your heart is completely in it because you realize whatever I'm saying no to is actually worse for me because now I'm saying yes to God. And it's not hard to sacrifice when you know that what you're going to receive versus what you're giving up is far better anyways. And you're completely surrendering your life to him. Here's what Peter would write in 1 Peter 2. He said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Pay attention to this. So that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You proclaim his excellencies. That's king language. You're going around proclaiming the excellency of your king. What does it mean to share the gospel? It means to talk about your king, not just about Jesus as your savior, but Jesus as the king of your life. You're proclaiming the fact that he is an excellent king. He's the king that we needed. He's the king that we didn't even know that we needed because we were so busy trying to build our own little kingdoms. But yet when Jesus came into our life and he shook us up, and he changed us, 
you turned our heart back toward his, we realize it's not about me and my little kingdom because that's easily shaken. It's about him and his excellency, being his child, being a part of his chosen race, a royal priesthood, this holy nation, a people that belongs to him. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you a question. It's not an easy question to ask because it's a hard question for me to answer personally. And I'm going to ask you to answer it this morning in your own heart and in your own, in your own mind. And not to lie to yourself because that's the easy thing to do. To truly look inward and to take a minute. Maybe you don't even, can't even fully answer it here right now, but maybe you'll think about it today. And maybe even this week as God brings that thought back to your mind. It's a hard question for us to answer, but it's one of the most important questions we will ever answer. Who is reigning on the throne of your heart? There is a throne in your heart, whether you realize it or not, and someone or something is reigning on it. Could be that you're reigning on it, you're sitting on the throne, and you're in control of your life, and you're running your life, and you're going to do whatever you want to do. And that's good, but that's a false gospel. And at some point, it's going to be shaken, it's going to be destroyed, and you're going to be left with brokenness, empty, hurt, devastation. It will come. It could be that there's a career that's running over the throne of your heart and you're just pursuing that day after day, trying to do better, trying to achieve a little bit more, trying to please somebody else, and it's dominating your life. At some point, it's going to come crashing down. At some point, it will end. And then what will you be left with? It could be a person, relationship, family, could be dreams and goals. Not all of these things are bad things. Some of them are good things. They're God-given things. But when they sit on the throne of our life, they become sinful, wicked, evil, counterfeit. Then again, it could be something sinful sitting on the throne of your heart. A passion, impure desire, a sin you've refused to let go of. It's completely dominating your life. An addiction could be bitterness, something that's directing you. It's changed everything about you because you've refused to forgive, refused to let go. I don't know what it is. My prayer is that when you look inward and you really pull away all of the lies that you and your enemy, Satan, have tried to place there to deceive you, what I hope you truly see is Jesus reigning on the throne of your heart. That's the goal. And even as baptized believers, you've given your life to him, what you can find if you're not careful is that you can just kind of push him off the throne, slide his throne to the side, and you start sitting there. Jesus is not interested in co-ruling with you. He's Lord of all or Lord of none. He wants all of our heart. He is King of kings. and He's reigning at the right hand of God. I love the text that Camden read to us. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the language, but it's king language. God exalted him. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. That's, that's what we're called to do. Surrender to our king because he is the great and true king. And he calls for your life today. So this morning, if you've not given your life to Jesus, if he's not become the Christ of your life, the king over your life, today you can make that happen through repentance and confession and through surrendering, surrendering your life to him in baptism.
That can happen for you today. And then from then on, he can be the king of your life. Today, if you're here, but you've been baptized, but you realize you've moved him off the throne and you or something else has taken that seat and you no longer want to be there, you know that Jesus needs to reign over your life. What you're called to do, simple, but incredibly difficult. You've got to confess it. You've got to confess it and repent of it. And make those necessary changes so that Jesus can reign over your life. Our shepherds will be up front and in the back to pray with you, to encourage you today, to do whatever we can do to help you so that Jesus can truly not only be the King of Kings, but your King. So if we can help you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing?